Welcome to episode four of Around the Bar. This episode, we are joined by Alan Woodard. He is a marine canvas fabricator, sale consultant salesman at Quantum Sales Gulf Coast. He's a sailor by trade, an avid racer on the local and regional level in a variety of yacht classes. He's a native of Bel Air, Maryland. He is active in scouts and an avid sportsman, and especially of his beloved Baltimore Orioles. Join us as we talk to Alan about sailing, the sailing industry, sports, and everything else in between. Welcome to Around the Bar, the podcast series where we talk about the law, life, culture, and hopefully have some fun. I'm your host, Ramesh Raghu. Welcome, Alan. How's it going? Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I know we've been we've talked about doing a pod and you know all the different kind of conversations that we have, and we're like we should definitely do this. And I'm really glad that we've decided to take the time to do this. So yeah. tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. So I was born and raised in Maryland, Bel Air, Maryland, which is about 30 miles or so northeast of Baltimore. Grew up there. I uh, went to Nashville, Tennessee, to a school called Lipscomb for uh, college for a couple of years. And uh, then I was back in the, the Maryland area, lived a little while in Alexandria, Virginia, working in D.C. and stuff like that. Eventually found my way onto a sailboat. And once I got on the boat, that took me out of the country for a few years. Ended up back in Maryland, in Annapolis. And uh, that started my journey into the sailing industry. So how did you actually end up? Well, before we get there, let me ask you this. You're in Houston now. I, I know you have a, you have a daughter. And she is where? My daughter's in Germany. Okay. Um, yep. She's uh, she lives over there with my uh, with my ex. But uh, you know, thankfully, we live in the days of FaceTime and Skype and all that stuff. So uh, you know, we get to stay closer than uh, closer than it seems like we could. Yeah, it really does make things a lot easier these days with FaceTime. I remember, you know, interesting, just interesting story. Growing up, my parents, you know, coming from from India. It used to be incredible how difficult it was to just communicate. Like even the phone calls, they spent half the time screaming on either end, "Can you hear me? Can you hear me?" Right. And at the same time, this is all like four dollars a minute yeah. <laughs> in 1985. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yep. um, it's amazing how much uh, things have changed and how closer the world has become because of it. Oh yeah. I am interested to know how did you actually end up here in Houston from coming from the Northeast? Yeah. So. Uh... After spending a while on sailboats, I came back to Annapolis and through kind of a friend of a friend connection, found my way to working in the quantum sales loft in Annapolis. Uh, I wanted to do canvas work on boats. I, I had experimented with that a bit with a little portable sewing machine on some of, the, some of the boats that I was sailing on. I wanted to go that route, but I was also open to doing uh, sail repair if that would get me in the door. And it just so happened it was a good situation. I did that for a few years, got some training along the way, and uh, actually opened my own shop in Annapolis for, uh, lasted about two and a half years. And uh, it was always a struggle trying to get uh, to a point where I could bring in full-time help. At that point, struggling a bit, my old uh, supervisor reached out and was looking for a candidate for the uh, position down here in Texas. And I threw my hat in the ring. So uh, a few weeks later, really, I was I was on my way to Houston, and I've been here since <laughs> since uh, the spring of 2016. Wow! So you have been, it's almost been eight years now. Yeah, oh, it's over eight. 
Yeah. Okay. Coming, coming up on eight. Yep. And you you like it here? I do. Yeah. I my body had adjusted to warmer climates, I think, <laughs> while sailing, and uh, you know I would I I'll take a a hot stretch of summer in Houston over uh, a super cold stretch anywhere. I'm from Houston, grew up Sugar Land the whole night, but I went to college in Cleveland and then I went to law school in St. Louis. And those winters will get you, yeah. right? And now when I'm away from it, you said something that really resonated. I, I do miss it, but when I think back to it, when I was in St. Louis, there, there was a month in, in February, it was literally iced and snow for like 11 straight days yeah. and i remember thinking to myself in the cold nothing works at least when it's hot it's uncomfortable yeah. but like things work well and it's awesome as a kid ice and snow you know that just means time inside watching the prices right like six days <laughs> or you know playing playing video games all day in your pajamas because you get the day off but once you kind of get past the school day thing like you just have to function in those uh, in those months. Yeah, come, I, come whatever the weather. So I don't miss digging my car out of snow. No. I don't miss having to chip the ice off of my windshield before you know getting in. We I know we've talked a little bit about sailing. I have some questions about that, but we definitely we'll get there. Avid sports fan. Yes. Play sports growing up. Just baseball. Okay. I mean, I played a little bit of everything. You know, just on the playground or in the yard or whatever. But uh, baseball, I played organized just rec ball and uh, maybe a, a season or two of travel baseball big fan of cal ripken jr and the orioles growing up i just wanted to wanted to play ball but yeah I, uh, listen i wanted to be the the center fielder for the astros too but that didn't really work out for me <laughs> yeah you know our goals have a way of changing i guess <laughs> <laughs> or, <Yeah>. or adjusting <laughs> yeah, sometimes weekly <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know you, I know you have a, a lot of interest. And one of the things that you and I share, you know, on, on a personal level, is we're we're very interested in a lot of different things. So, what are some of these other passions or interests or rabbit holes that you like to get into? Oh well, recently one thing that's been added to my list of of topics to try to, to try to keep up with is camping and outdoor outdoor stuff uh, such as backpacking. Because my girlfriend Renee, her son Dexter, he just transitioned over to Boy Scouts last year, and so we're going through all of the all the learning stages and just doing a lot of camping, which is a whole lot of fun. But it wasn't something that I really even thought about doing until it was part of the prescribed program, you know. So yeah, it's it, been fun. I'm not a camping type, you know. My parents, my my parents weren't very kind of outdoorsy. My dad used to always say camping for him is a night at the Sheraton. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it, it, interestingly enough, what interests me about camping is like I feel like I would love all the gear. Yeah, I was a, I was just about to say, it, the best part about it is once you have a reason to buy all the stuff. Yeah, going down the the path of the lighter, the smaller, the better, the more waterproof gear. Yeah, it's a, it's a little addicting in itself. Yeah, I, I mean, look, <laughs> and I think that that kind of it tends to be a guy thing because, like, sometimes I'll think to myself, you know, I have all of this North Face stuff. I, I live in Cinco Ranch, Houston, Texas, <laughs> and I have this these amazing mountain climbing jackets. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And, you know, for your for your sojourns in the winter. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tell me what is a marine canvas fabricator. Along those lines, I do all of the stone work that you might find on a boat other than the sails. Okay. So the sails are left to the sailmakers, and then we do a lot of uh, sail service in our loft here. 
And I participate in that depending on needs, how busy we are on the sales side of things. But the canvas side of things would be T-top, Bimini's, if people are familiar with that, it was just a shade on a frame up over the cockpit of the boat, as well as full boat covers on uh, sailboats. There are dodgers, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's a, it's a little booth type structure that you can dodge the spray behind while you're sailing the boat. And then also simple things like uh, covers, like sail covers, uh, covers for the wheel and the helm and the instruments and things that you want to keep out of the sun or maybe away from, you know, potential the theft and yeah. eyes and all that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, pretty much anything on a, and oh, including uh, upholstery as well. Okay. So cushions upholstery. Yeah. Now, in, in that realm, with the stuff and the stuff you do, is there a competitive component to it? Meaning, when you add what you do to the boat, are there specifications that you want to make it because it makes it helps with making the boat faster? Very rarely. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that would be more on the sales side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we use like super lightweight materials to mm-hmm. keep the weight on a boat down mm-hmm. for components that are purely organizational, like uh, line bags to hold the lines used to control the sails, but you got all these tails in the cockpit. Something like that, the way that we can contribute to speed a little bit from the canvas side is by using high-tech, lightweight materials. That's about it. (laughs) Okay. Well, look, you know, this is a completely new area for for me and for I'm sure for a lot of people. You know, I know we've mentioned that sailing is is, is really a niche uh, in, in, in the world of sports and just in the world of everything. I mean, sailing is it's. You either have a lot of exposure to it or you don't. Yeah, yeah. And you see that with a lot of the uh, people coming through the childhood ranks of you know, youth sailing. It's a lot of the same last names of the guys you see on the race results from the weekend regattas and stuff, too. You know, so it's, it's something that when, when you're exposed to it, I think a lot of people fall in love with it. Yeah, I mean, I grew up 15 minutes from a place where I could have participated as a kid. It wasn't that I didn't want to, but I didn't even know about it. You know, it's, it's not something that is on most people's radar. So. Interesting, because honestly, I would have never thought about growing up. And honestly, until you and I became friends, the only thing I knew about sailing was the America's Cup and yeah. Dennis Connor. I mean, I just yeah. remember that from being a kid growing up. Yeah. Because it was a big thing at the time. So no, and and really like the the coverage of sailing has become so much better just in the past few years with the use of drones, keeping the cost down versus, you know, having to do helicopters previously wow. for photography and video. You know, most of this stuff happens far enough off the shore that you either have to film from a boat or you have to film from uh overhead. And so now with YouTube and stuff, I feel like there are avenues for people to find out about it that didn't exist before. But mm-hmm. uh, but even then, it can be a little daunting to try to like, how do I get involved in that? You know? Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of how do I get involved in that? How did you get into it? So my my original interest in sailing was purely travel. I came across the kind of romantic idea of traveling by by sail, and it really kind of took over my goal, <laughs> my goals in life, I guess. It became a bit of, a, of an obsession to the point where I went and took an outward bound sailing course in Maine. How old were you at this time? I was a 20, so, 24. So th- this came up later in life kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I became aware of the idea of traveling by sail 
on small boat, you know, as opposed to like a, a cruise ship or something like that, either right at the end of high school or even the first year or two of college. Like it was late, but when I got focused in on it, it was kind of pushed other hobbies and, and focuses out of the way. So talk to me about this uh, outward bound school in Maine, the sailing course. What's that like? The outward bound course, it's, I would say kind of a leadership school, but they, they also run a lot of programs for kids who are having trouble kids from troubled home situations and i think you know kids who've gotten in trouble at school and need a bit of uh extra help or mm-hmm. you know, a little stricter guidance maybe and out of outside of a classroom but the course that i took was a course they do for adults uh it was a you know purely volunteer thing <laughs> there were 20 something of us on this uh this 30 foot little boat that we rode when there was no wind and then sailed when we could and just slept under a tarp, basically, just on top of the oars uh, at night when we would anchor. Oh, and wow. So did that for a week in Penobscot Bay. And, and they uh, teach you how the mechanics of what you need to do, how you need to do this. Yeah, and there was, a, there was a focus on navigation. There was a focus on, you know, planning, plotting a course that you plan to execute and then follow that course to arrive at your anchorage for the night and then there was also a little focus on kind of i guess you might say meditation there was a a single night camp out by yourself on one of the points of the uh the island where we stopped midweek and uh it was just a just a really good experience uh was there any other key events um i think you'd mentioned you went to another school yeah after uh after the outward bound school i was i was determined to get on a boat and spend some spend some time traveling hopefully and the way that I figured out that I might be able to do that was by crewing on a yacht. And I found a uh, seamanship course at, a, at the Chapman School of Seamanship in Stewart, Florida. I signed up for their professional mariner training course, which was a three-month live-on-campus type course. So pretty, pretty intensive, even though three months is relatively short. And at the end of that, they also had a uh, safety and firefighting uh, unit called STCW 95, had to do with the regulation that required that on certain yachts. Took that course within a month and a half. I had exchanged emails with a guy and ended up heading out to Nassau, Bahamas to step aboard as a crew member. And for the next five years, I was living aboard in different parts of the world as we, as we traveled. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you this. What do they teach you in seamanship school? Seamanship school covered a, a wide variety of things. They based their curriculum on Coast Guard 100 gross ton captain's license exam. And that's kind of the entry level captain's exam. There's a, I believe there's a 50 ton, but it's been a while since I've, I've looked at all that. And uh, so the things that you cover are navigation. Uh, there's, there are navigation tests that involve plotting points on a chart. The rules of the road, which has a lot to do with uh, the pecking order between vessels and who has the right of way in certain situations. I did a sail concentration that also went into a lot of stuff that you that you need to know on a sailboat that you don't need to know on a powerboat, okay. such as just basic sailing skills, heating to, and things like that. <laughs> and uh, in that course, we did engine maintenance. Uh, so there was a diesel diesel engine maintenance course with a little module that we did on on gas engines, I believe. There was a lot of close quarters maneuvering, you know, because when you're out at sea, you're not really you're not really in danger of hitting things very often. It's it's usually at the dock or around it. So with there was a big focus on just maneuvering different types of boats in and out of small areas. I mean, it seems pretty all encompassing. It, 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 it basically what it sounds like it's a, 
it equips you to be a jack of all trades on the boat. Yeah. And which which is super important when you have such a limited number of people. In in my case, for most of the time, I was the only crew member. It was up to me to make dinner, but also to fix the engine when our muffler was melting. And, and that course did a good job of kind of focusing on a lot of the practical stuff, the fixing, while also teaching the navigational and the kind of the more uh, high-level sailing and ship-running <laughs> operations. <laughs> Moving out of that box and moving into the competitive sailing yeah. box, give, give us some of the examples of the different styles of, of racing. Okay, so uh, there's, there's definitely a few types of, of sailing and uh, different types of sailing regattas. And the regattas are really just any competition that's on the water, uh, you could refer to as a regatta. So, uh, like, good, because that was one of my questions. What is a regatta? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there's offshore racing, which is usually point to point. Sometimes it's a loop back to the same departure point. You know, you, you finish where you start. Other times it's from uh, one place to a destination. Like in our area here in, in the Gulf of Mexico next week will be the Harvest Moon Regatta, which is a race from Galveston to Puerto Aransas over near Corpus Christi. And that race is it's point to point, and you just deal with the conditions as you deal with them. I think there's one mark of the course along the way, which you just have to stay a certain number of miles off the off the coast at that point. Uh, so it's it's kind of a free for all, and the boats are pretty varied. They carry a lot of different equipment, different they they weigh different amounts, they carry a different amount of sail area, and they race in the same race. And they race in the same race. So there are there are divisions uh, to break down different types of boats. But in those divisions, there are also uh, handicap adjustments. So the boats are measured, the sails are measured, the weight is taken into consideration, and they're given a rating. And that rating is then used to adjust their finish time based either on the distance that was covered during the race or the average time that the race took to complete. Okay, so let me understand this. There's a, obviously a, a baseline set of requirements for boats, right? And then for a certain race, right? And then there's all these different boats. But what to make the race fair so you just don't have one boat dominating or you know right. the boat with the all the greatest stuff dominating they have a handicap right? right and each boat and it's used i guess it's one system there are multiple systems out there but each each race or each regatta is going to pick a system that they're operating under so they pick their set of rules basically and the boat has is measured for that rule the sails are measured for that rule the the most common one right now is called ORC, the Ocean Racing Council, Congress, I believe, Ocean Racing Congress, and uh, the adjustments to your time are based on the uh, time on time, I believe, is the the most popular uh, ORC measurement. Mm -hmm. So you would say if the race lasted six hours, there was there'd be some adjustment per hour to your time. Yeah, you're you're either going to be getting some time from other boats or giving time to other boats, unless you are the scratch boat right in the middle of the fleet. So, so depending on the race, right, and depending on this on the system, you strategically alter your boat to fit that system, right? Definitely, that's half the game for some sailors. Okay. They some people really love the the tweakiness of sailing one design sailing, which is where the boats are as identical as possible. You know, you might have different age of sails. You can adjust your rig differently, but you're basically sailing the same boat against a bunch of boats that are all the same. I.e. Formula One, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any 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 auto racing that has governors, any any auto racing that has something to kind of limit the field a bit. And then there are guys who love the boat optimization side of it, and they would 
definitely go more for a handicap uh, racer because they want to they want to exploit the handicap as much as possible. They want to figure out the, the best way their boat can operate and get the uh, the best time adjustment that uh, to be that as can. efficient on the time on time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, what are the different style races or boats that you've been involved with? So the, the boats that I've raced on the most here in Texas have been J-22s, which is a 22-foot, uh, it was a 1980, I think it's an 84 design, uh, came out a few years after the J-24, mm-hmm. and it's a, we race it with three people, it's a, a mono hull. You know, so, so just sitting, three people on the boat? Just three people on the boat, it has a, a Dacron, which is just polyester with resin on it polyester mainsail and jib for us going upwind and then downwind we have a nylon finnicker which is the big colorful balloon sails that you see on some boats mm-hmm. so just those three sails there's no no changing of head sails or anything there's no lifelines on the boat is there a crew chief uh you know and a, like a quote-unquote garage and, and, like is there a team that 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 you guys work together but you guys are the crew no, on these boats, like the same people that are getting the boat ready for the day are the ones sailing it. Too. Okay. So we're, you know, when we get done racing, we bring the boat back, we take it out of the water, we hose it off, we coil the lines and, and put it away. Yeah, you'd have to get into much bigger boats to uh, have the kind of rock star just get back to the dock, walk off. And let everybody uh, else pick everything See you tomorrow, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not the kind of racing that, uh, that I've been involved with. So what other style of racing? You, you mentioned the three-man. What's the other style? So uh, I've also done a good bit of J24 racing, which is we usually have five people on the boat for that. Uh, similar setup, but there are two options for the head sails. So you have a, a big overlapping Genoa or a smaller jib. I've done some sailing on J105s, which are uh, they're a 10.5-meter boat. That's what the 105 is, mm-hmm. uh, about, about 30 feet, I guess. And uh, they we have seven or eight people on the crew there, I believe. And they carry a Dacron mainsail, but then they allow high-tech fibers in their headsails. So all these classes, they try to fit kind of a price point, a demographic of sailor, I would say. Okay. You know, when when cloth is limited to Dacron, that's a cost-saving feature. And then in a lot of those classes, there are also a limit to the number of sails that you can buy each, each year so that you can't have one guy who shows up with a brand new set of sails every regatta while everybody else is trying to budget. But it, it's kind of a salary cap mm-hmm. on, your, on your boat. Now, would sailing with a brand new sail every time be a huge advantage? It, for, for a crew that knows how to use the sails well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. even, even a weekend of moderate breeze, the sails are not in the same shape as they were when they were fresh from the from the factory. Well, it's very similar to to, to Formula One racing. It's like the tires, right? I mean, yeah. you know, they have limitations on the, the amount of the different sets of tires you're allowed to use per race, and yep. you know whether they're the slick fast ones or the intermediates or and and a lot of that stuff, I think is also a cost-saving thing. So you can't just mercenary your way to a victory <laughs> every single time just by outspending the other guy. Yeah. So even even when it seems like they're spending crazy, there's still a cost-saving measure in place, I think. Understood. Now, is there a pecking order on these three-man, five-man, eight-man teams? Yeah. Most of the boats that I sail on, the the guy who owns the boat or one of the two people possibly who own the boat, they're the one who's going to be driving. So they're, they're on the helm. And on the small boats like the J-22, they're also trimming their 
own mainsail, but somebody else in the crew, hopefully, is their tactician or their strategist. And that person, along with whatever other responsibilities they have, such as trimming the mainsail or trimming the jib, that person's job is to make the final decision as to what the strategy is to get up or down the course. You're trying to find the way to get from point A to point B in as quick a time as possible by finding a good amount of breeze and breeze at a good angle that takes you up the course because the course sits while the breeze moves and taking advantage of the breeze movement is a big part of uh, the strategy of the race. So the tactician during the race, I'd say he's the boss. But the helmsman, anytime you're not actually racing and anytime you're dealing with boat work or Equipment decisions, it, the helmsman's probably going to be in charge if he's the uh, the owner of the vessel. Okay, but even, even I have so many questions. Even when you're in the middle uh, of the race, if, let's say, the owner and he's on the wheel, your tactician is saying one thing, if, if that guy on the wheel wants to do something different, we're going to do what he wants, right, typically? If, if, he, if he decides to overrule the tactician. Okay. The, the whole goal of making it one person's responsibility is allowing the helms person to just focus on driving. Okay. So you don't want that guy to have, really, he shouldn't have enough information to make that decision. But yeah, in reality, yeah, if, if the owner and or, and or helmsman <laughs> steers the boat that way, that's where you're going, and you can talk, it up, talk about it later. How much strategy is put in pre-race versus once you get started? I think the amount of time that you could consider strategy is huge before the race sides because that goes to everything from how the how the boat is taken care of to when parts are replaced how lines are run the way the deck is set up and then each day when you're at your race weekend or your race week each day the the earlier you can get out on the course and and start looking at how the wind is moving and how the wa- the waves are moving and taking notice of of tide and current all of that information makes your decision-making during the race much more informed and, and easier. Is there a limitation on technology that you can use? Because I would assume nowadays with what, the, what is available out there, you could have an iPad, you know, and track wind, track yeah. current. With everything possibly being on somebody's wrist nowadays with, mm-hmm. a, with an Apple Watch or another smartwatch, I would say that it's harder to enforce these limitations. But each class does have their own limitations. For example, the J22 class that I sell a good bit in, you're only supposed to have a compass and speed device. Okay. That, that's the only thing you're supposed to be able to have. But there are a lot of devices out there that are actually less expensive, but they provide more information. I mean, you can hook up sensors so that it can give you wind information. You can also do things like pinging the ends of the start line so that you have GPS guidance timing of your start sequence, all that stuff. What is your favorite style of racing? I really like one design racing on what is pretty typical uh, for inshore racing, which is a windward leeward course. So that is the race committee sets up a race course that's supposed to be on the axis of where the wind is coming from. And you race upwind and downwind a set number of times, uh, a lot of times maybe two full laps, four legs of the course. Uh, or six if you count the offset legs. But uh, you go upwind, have a little bit of an offset, then you, on the J22, you set your spinnaker, get your jib down, come downwind, do that, two lap, you're sailing against boats that are identical, yeah, or as identical as possible. Yeah. And uh, and so it's just the first one across the finish line is the winner of the race, and it's a sport kind of like golf in that it's incredibly frustrating. <laughs> 
always a learning experience, but when it goes right, it's really, really nice. So I, I, I would totally, I can totally understand the one design because first up, you know, you're using a uh, similar boat and there, the challenge becomes now, how do we set the boat up? What's our strategy? You know, what are we going to do? Um, curious because, you know, in sports, you hear terms, right? And one of the things people say is, oh, it was a boat race. Meaning that once somebody gets ahead, usually nobody catches the catches up. Yeah. Is that true? I would say in uh, in high level racing where you're dealing with skilled people all the way around, yeah, that that's it's not a guarantee, but yeah, you're you're at an extreme advantage once you have the lead. Mm-hmm. You pick your own course from there. You're not choosing where to go on the race course based on somebody who's ahead of you. So that's a that's a big advantage in the reality of of most racing locally and regionally there's enough variation in the skill level of different boats that anything can happen on any given race you know the the cream will rise to the top for sure over the course of a weekend or a week but uh in any given race you could have a huge comeback or you can have gear failure i mean a lot of things can happen so i've heard the term race weekend what are the events what comprises a race weekend the racing that i've done the most here in texas has been on the texas circuit where we travel to austin Canyon Lake, Corpus Christi, Fort Worth, Freeport, Dallas, Corinthian, all these different uh, lakes and uh, also the bay venues such as Corpus and, and Galveston Bay here. On a weekend like that, we would be getting the trailer hooked up to, carry, to take the boat, head out, get into the destination three, four, five hours later, set up the boat that night as long as the weather's not terrible and maybe even get it in the water. And then Saturday morning, usually an early start, 8 o'clock, 8.30 boat time. Get there, set up the boat for the day, adjust the rig for the day, and we'd be racing by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Probably trying to do three to five races on Saturday with one to three races on Sunday, depending on how many you get in on Saturday. What's the average length of a race? The time, uh, the time of... They try to keep them about an hour, it seems. Okay. Uh, a little under an hour is... is not uncommon, especially on the lake. A lot of the races, you're looking at a course length of about a mile. So a four-leg course around that would give you a four-mile race okay. in that in that 45 minutes to an hour. Is there a qualification setup? That, is there a qualifying process that you need to do either to get into the regatta or once you're in it for start times and positions? There are in some. Okay. It, most of the regattas out there, no. Okay. Most of the regattas are open entry. You just show up. You you run your race and and uh, that's it. But uh, all boats start at the same time in your class, yes. So like if there were a bunch of J24s out there and a bunch of J105s out there out on the race course, they wouldn't start together. Okay. But all the J22s would. And that there they would be their own race, right? Yes. And then the J24s would be their own race. Exactly. Right? So it's not just setting a time per se. The races that we're talking about. It's actually first across the finish line is the okay. first one is first place. Okay. And you try to string together as as consistent of results as you can so that you hopefully end up with the lowest score at the end of the weekend. And out of these say max eight races, you calculate the points and they total up and then somebody wins the regatta. Exactly. And usually uh, a lot of the casual regattas uh after you get six races in, you're able to drop your lowest score, okay. your worst score. So if you had a, you know, bunch of first places and then a 13 and you get to seven races now you've just got the row of, of bullets the, the first place okay All so, right. you know that that plays into the strategy in certain regattas so when a team wins say so the team wins uh the regatta let's say right they do all the placing are there other 
internal competition in that, you know, or is it just these eight races, whoever scores the lowest, or is there, are there other? There are multiple levels to, like, for example, the Texas circuit. Each circuit event is its own regatta. So you could go and you could win the Austin Yacht Club regatta. And then you go and you don't do as well in some of the other races. Well, over the course of the year, those, those totals, those, uh, your placing at each of those regattas is being tallied. And then the top four, I think, that you had go into your placing for the whole circuit. So you get ranked at each regatta. You could get first, second, third, or on down places. And then for the year, you could end up in first place, even if you never won a regatta that year. Yeah. If you had consistent twos and threes, that's a recipe for, for winning the circuit sometimes. What's your favorite role on the boat? Ah. Uh, I mean, everybody wants to be the tactician. Mm. Everybody wants to be the one making the decisions and, you know, hopefully getting the glory for <laughs> making the right choices. But uh, I really enjoy almost any role as long as I've got something, you know, I don't want to be bored. I want to be busy. The front of the boat being up on the bow on the foredeck is, uh, is, is wet and wild sometimes, and that's a lot of fun. But uh, it's nice every now and then, and I've been trying to do it more and more to move back into the cockpit, trimming sails, and and talking a little more strategy with the uh, with the other guys. Well, and there's a there's a actually a good correlation with law uh, in sailing. When you're racing, you're you're operating under a set of rules, and uh, it kind of is a gentleman's sport still. In that nobody's out there. I mean, in most races. Now, if you get into high level match racing and stuff like that, there there are umpire boats out there to make calls on the water, but most races, most regional and, and local racing, somebody can protest you if they think that you took, took the right of way when you shouldn't have, or if you otherwise fouled somebody. If you don't do a turn or two turns to exonerate yourself on the course, then you end up in the protest room, and there's a hearing, and there are witnesses, and wow. you, you have to be your own sea lawyer to uh, <laughs> convince the, uh, the race committee, or the, the judges, that you were in the right, and that you, know, you deserve your the place that you got in the regatta or sometimes redress like they'll they'll adjust the place that you got if somebody fouled you so bad mm -hmm. that you were knocked down in the standing That's, so there's yeah. a whole <laughs> there's a whole uh hearing process and all that so i'm assuming with all of that always comes some politics <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> yeah all right uh i know we've kind of hit the sailing thing let me uh ask you about this most memorable racing experience i would say it's hard to pick just one because it's the most fun moments are when things are kind of just crazy. You know, you might be bouncing off the bouncing off the front of the boat, not knowing if you're going to land on the boat or off the boat um, when it's kind of wet and wild. But uh, I would say, I mean, the, the biggest win that I took part in uh, was I was uh, part of the crew for the J105 North American Championship down here in Texas back in 2017. and we had a, a great crew. I just hopped on the bow and tried not to make us lose. <laughs> and uh, we ended up finishing the regatta with, we could have sat out and watched the last race and uh, it wouldn't have changed the standings no matter what happened. I can only imagine the camaraderie and the, the like uh, euphoria of being on a team and winning something like that. It was pretty cool. <laughs> What's your dream end goal sailing for your sailing career? I, as, I'd love to be able to keep it my career for, for you know, till retirement, I would think. Uh, you know, if I can keep doing stuff on and around the water and making an okay living at it, 
that's not a bad deal. You know, yeah. <laughs> look around some days and, you know, you got to remind yourself, yeah, might be a little stressful some days, but you're still working in marinas and, uh, you know, listening to the boats bang and clang in the breeze. So not yeah. too bad. I mean, sounds, sounds great. How would someone with just absolutely no sailing experience, but hey, stumbled into it and says, I want to get involved. I want to, I want to be part of a sail team. The, the best way to start is weeknight sailing. Uh, weeknight sailing takes place in almost anywhere that you have more than a few sailboats uh, at the marina or the yacht club or whatever. It's usually very open. There are usually ways to either websites or Facebook groups or uh, just showing up in person. There are ways to say, I'd like to step on board as a, as a substitute crew member. People are very accepting. They understand that you might not know anything, but if, you've got, if you can help by just moving your weight around the boat in the right locations, that can be a, a good position. And then from showing up at those places, you'll get involved with the social activities that go around them. And it's a good way to, to get in and meet some people. And uh, you know, people are always looking for crew. You would think it'd be hard because it sounds like a fun thing to do. But uh, it's not hard to find a spot. There are a lot of people out there looking for crew. I know we mentioned a couple of times we're both big time sports fans. Grew up in uh, the Maryland area. Rank your favorite teams. I'm an Orioles fan first and foremost. I, I grew up in a family of Orioles fans. You know, I remember going to games at Memorial Stadium and trying to trying to get autographs back when all the old names were there. Of course, Cal Ripken, but uh, Chris Hoyles catching <laughs> and Mickey Tettleton and Mike Devereaux and all these guys that are now aging broadcasters or uh, you know owning teams. So, yeah. yeah, and then uh, Ravens. I didn't really have a football team before the Ravens came to town. I was a default Cowboys fan, which I'm sure is not a popular thing to be around here. But uh, You'll be surprised. Yeah. In, in Houston, I always say this real quick because I know now. I say, there are so many kids who grew up in Sugarland, Sharpstown, A-Leaf, who wake up and are like, weed and boys. Yeah. And I promise you, there's <laughs> nobody in Dallas, Arlington, or Fort Worth who's like, I'm a Texas fan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I never became a, a Redskins fan. You know, that was the closest football team growing up. And the Cowboys were good. They were fun to watch. You know, Always Troy Eggman, Nate Newton, Emmett Smith, the whole, the Michael Irvin, the whole gang. That was fun to watch on a Sunday afternoon. I had a couple of fraternity brothers that were from the, the Maryland area. And, and some of them actually moved back, like Gaithersburg. And I forget the other um, the town. But the point I'm trying to make is what they would tell me about the Orioles is that it is really woven into the culture in that area, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, the Orioles are, are one of the few things that I think most people in the greater Baltimore area, not just, not just downtown Baltimore, but it's one of the few things that people can agree on. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rough, bad stuff. You know, there have been bad situations in Baltimore, you know. For, for years, but uh, everybody's pretty unified around the Orioles, especially when they're doing well. Yeah. And even when people are talking trash, it's, uh, it's they wish they were better, or, you know, they, they, they wish they didn't have to complain. You know, they want the team to be good for the most part. So. Talk to me, your thoughts on this season. It had to be magical. It was, it was the best season of baseball I've watched. You know, we had good years in, like, 96, 97. I was 
traveling and moving and stuff when they were decent in the teens. I was going to say 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I was aware of it and I followed a bit late in the season, but but this season, getting into it, part to you, kind of you know turning me on to the ridiculous crop of talent that they had coming up was uh it made for a really fun season of listening on my drives home and and following i think just about every pitch of probably 150 games out of the season it, you know baseball has a way of doing that to you the fact the the everyday ebb and flow it it is truly woven into the fabric of my life you know yeah it, it becomes a it becomes a way you tell time almost on my drives home, you know, I'd be passing the same spot in the third inning or whatever. <laughs> it's like it's a little mile marker on the in the game, even. You know, I, I'm a huge Astros fan, and I'm a big follower of what we've done and and how we've rebuilt this team. I looked at your prospect rankings because you know they were number one, and then I, I started to look at the top five guys, and you hadn't even drafted Jackson Holiday yet, you know. And yeah. I thought to myself, "Holy yeah!" And I. I actually had a guy work with me for a while who had had been a semi-pro ball player, and he mentioned to me a few of the names, like the Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson names. And so I had been turned on to that just a little bit, but I had no idea how how deep the pool was. You know, the Orioles, I think they've always done well with with pitching coming up through the farm system, but it just seems everything's covered right now. Yeah. You know, there's a prospect waiting in the wings for almost every position on the field. I mean, the left side of your infield is set for a decade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and like you know, when the when the old man on the team is Cedric Mullins or uh, <laughs> Austin Hayes or whatever, like that's a young team. Yeah. So you know, we got some some good years ahead. I think. What was the playoffs like? That was pretty bad. Yeah, but I'm <laughs> talking these... the the lead up, the build up to the playoffs was great. I mean, seeing the the hype videos and also the the Orioles. I don't know. I didn't see as much of what the other teams were doing, but they they had practice with fans at the stadium there in Baltimore, and it was very cool to see the the outpouring of just all the Orioles, everybody bleeding orange from from Baltimore. So many close games. I I think it was the most. Uh, one-run games, you know, in the league. So many games that they came back in. So many games they came back, like, more than three, from a, a more than three-run deficit. I mean, the clutch hits and the ability to keep the pressure on, even when they were looking pretty defeated in some of these games, was just like, man, if you get, if that's the character these guys have at 23, like, they're going to be good for a while, I would, I would think. You know, yeah. let's hope they don't get injured. So, Give me, give me your kind of analysis. If you had to, if you had to say this was, uh, you know, the key component in the ALDS as to why it turned out this way, what would you, what would you say? I think, I think the youth showed up in a way that was unfortunate. Somehow that just didn't work out for them. Okay. Uh, I don't know if the guys were actually nervous or if it was just a weird transition, you know, I mean, you have this grind of 162 games in like 180 days and then you get five days off or whatever. They got. Like they haven't had five days off in their memory. Yeah. You know? Not even all-star break is five yeah. days, you know? So. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that doesn't help. And I've seen people proposing all kinds of stuff for the, for changing the way the playoffs are. I don't think it's really that. I don't think it necessarily needs to be fixed. You know, teams, teams will figure out how to deal with it. Yeah. Whatever they do, they you know. But yeah, I mean, the 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 pitching didn't didn't last. That's where I was going to go. Was the, the pitching. The pitching had been the pitching had been really good in the later part of the season, but they kind of 
went back to how the pitching looked earlier in the season, which was not as good. And I'm sure those guys are, you know, so much of, they're on so much of a rhythm that that time off, no matter what you do, you can't simulate the, the pressure to go along with the physical activity, I don't think. I also think with the, it was Felix, right? Bautista, the, yeah. That, I think oh, that. that injury yeah. and shortening your bullpen down, and especially your key guy, really made an impact. And, and at the same time as they lost him, almost almost identical timing, I think, they went to a six-man rotation. So now you've taken two people out of the bullpen, basically. I mean, one of them just ability-wise. You know, somebody's there in Bautista's place, but that's not the same as having Bautista out there. And then one of your potential bullpen slots is taken by one of your six starters now, and it shortens up a bullpen that was already struggling. So it's not surprising that they were pretty taxed. You know, they they didn't rise to the occasion either, but uh, it didn't seem like a big shock. All right, quick hitters here. Your Mount Rushmore of Baltimore Orioles. Okay, Cal Ripken, Brooks Robinson. We, you know, just just lost Brooks Robinson this year. Frank Robinson and uh, and Jim Palmer. I, but Palmer, I remember as a kid. Yeah, it's a it's a little tough though. There's guys like Eddie Murray, and then of course from my youth, guys like uh, Brady Anderson, who were you know great for a while and you know have a special place in in your kind of nostalgic thoughts on the team. For dinner guests, past or present, I would go with Tom Wolfe, the author. Uh, mm-hmm. Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, The Man in Full, Bonfire of the Vanities. That guy has inserted himself in so many different parts of society over such a cool span of time that uh, I feel like you'd need a while to listen to the stories if he remembers them. (laughs) And then uh, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, of course, of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Rolling Stone fame. Again, just somebody who uh, had an interesting perspective on life based on where he started and where he ended up. And the, the journey along the way. Uh, Gore Vidal, a great author who has an interesting perspective on kind of the powerful people in the country uh, going back like to World War II, really. He just died a few years ago. And his, uh, his autobiography points to just the type of experiences that give somebody stories that you just are never ending, basically. And then uh, Salvador Dali, because uh, you know, why not add a little crazy party? Yeah. Uh, D- Dolly is um, my, you know, one of my mom's favorite artists. Oh, yeah? Uh, she loves Dolly. Nice. She likes the, the style. Yeah. So, um, three favorite places to eat in the great culinary kingdom that is Houston. Culinary Mecca. Yeah. So, on the, on the high end of the seafood, I would go with Trulux. Good call. That's uh, pretty nice. And then, uh, I love going to Chinatown. Uh, any of the little dumpling houses and get the soup dumplings. Those are those are pretty killer. And then for just some to go pizza, Russo's New York pizza. Yeah, it's get solid. the get the fig and arugula pizza from there, and that is uh, that's a good afternoon. Yeah, you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Alan, I absolutely appreciate you taking the time to to talk to to, to us and do the podcast. Uh, the sailing uh, portion of this was extremely informative. Um, we definitely would love to have you back on. I'd love to be back. All right. Thanks.